There it is. Alright. What's up, everybody? It's me, your boy Steve. Back at the desk. Upstairs. Baked and awake. Headquarters. Sitting down with you this morning for a little bonus episode. Um, couldn't possibly put out a Halloween episode. Episode 12. Gotta have that unlucky number 13 for this Friday, so really looking forward to sharing with you the episode we put in the can last weekend with George and Paulu. This morning, I'm going to hang out with you for a little while, and i got a couple different stories about different things that I'm going to share with you, and a little update, personal update about a cool event took place this morning for me today already. Um, in the background here, if you can hear it, I think you can hear it is uh, U2. Great Irish band. This is Songs of Innocence, which I sought out on its release date back in 2014 and using mental telepathy pulled that album out of the ether right down into my iTunes folder without even turning on my phone. So... Even more interesting, I didn't even have to pay for that album. It was free. That's right. You two, long-standing fans, family members, VIPs, we all got that shit for free on the release date. Don't let anybody tell you that it was a compulsory iTunes over-the-air download or anything like that, because that's not the case. Not the case at all. Needed an engraved invitation to get this album. The only thing more rare and unobtainable in recent years, probably the one million dollar gold single press Wu-Tang Clan album purchased a couple years back by that skeevy Martin Scarelli dude. Creeper. I'm sure you're not listening, but if you are, you're a weird fucker. Everybody knows it. Anyway, I'm going to let the uh, Irish boys do their thing in the background. I think they're at a sufficiently subdued background level to work all right for us here. Uh, Let's take a quick look at our notes, what we put together here for you, for the bonus-ode. And uh, yeah, I'm going to start things off with a little update about the Gorilla Glue number four legal litigation issues uh, as pertaining to their name I mentioned back in I think it was episode two we talked about it and uh, like Girl Scout cookies before it Gorilla Glue has found themselves in hot water over over their naming convention and uh, you know uh, anecdotal stories of the stickiness of the buds notwithstanding uh, you know, the company Gorilla Glue is, you know, perhaps understandably, uh, let's just say, annoyed with the association that takes place with a cannabis strain, a very popular, incredibly popular cannabis strain being named after basically their product. So, long story short, um, you know, 
Gorilla Glue, Ohio-based company, back in March, they took issue with the Gorilla Glue strains, probably because they're becoming more and more prevalent in these legal markets around the country. Um, you know, they're uh, upset for trademark violations, potentially tainting the adhesive families oriented, you know, their their oriented their family-oriented reputation. Excuse me. <laughs> The glue company alleged, and this is a, this is an article from Herb.co uh, that, by the way, was uh, provided for me this morning by my good friend JRev down in Olympia, Washington of JRev Media, and uh, JRev kills it, makes amazing video content uh, continuously about the 502 industry and cannabis in general. Uh, so really aligned uh, folks down there with uh, the JRev uh, Media uh, sort of organization, uh, love what they're doing and thank you guys for keeping us uh plugged in to what's going on with stories like this uh so you know what we've got is basically gorilla glue lost or rather the the uh gorilla glue the company won and what we have is a sort of a judgment that's come down you know against anybody who would move forward with using that nomenclature for their strains now they could you know, be acted against. Um, so basically the settlement requires Gorilla Glue, Gorilla Glue strains to change the name of its strains from Gorilla Glue to GG number one, four, and five. They'll also have 12 months to rebrand and remove Gorilla imagery from all advertising and surrender their website's domain name. The only way GG strains will be allowed to use the word Gorilla in its name is in references to the strain's history. For example, quote, the brand formerly known as Gorilla Glue Number no. 4. So that sounds really it's pretty soft, frankly, because I think most of the time when I pick up Gorilla Glue these days, I see it listed as GG Number no. 4 on the packaging already. People have been doing that. Um, the court order extends beyond GG strains to its partners and licensees, which means any dispensaries that carry GG strains, branding will have to remove all mention of the word Gorilla and any Gorilla imagery from their shops. For consumers, the strain will likely always be known by its original name, duh, whether the court allows it or not. But for the world-famous strain, it seems to be the end of an era. So, yeah, there we go. So that's that's the story on Gorilla Glue. Uh, as, as the article indicates at the end there, you know, it doesn't really change much for us in, you know, our everyday life and enjoyment of... The GG number four strains, one, four, and five, all of those numbers, all those GG numbers. I'll try any of those GGs you got. If you got six or nine or whatever you got, we'll try it. Uh, but that's a little bit of, you know, fun stuff that happened there with Gorilla Glue. So thanks again, JRev, for that information. And, uh, you know, we'll look for more fun industry-type news like that, as always. Uh, okay, moving on. Super side note to everything. I want to let everybody know that I'm very happy to be sitting upstairs in the room this morning. Oh, about 12 feet away from my first ever harvested um, medical cannabis plant. I have my uh, Lake of Fire, which is a very rare uh, <laughs> Gorilla Glue number four crossed with Cobain Kush strain uh, that uh, I got from a dear friend and uh, have been taken care of all summer. Um, just caught the tiniest bit of bud rot on one or two buds uh, the, a day or two ago. 
in my little enclosure where I had it, finishing out the season, and, uh, you know, obviously had a minor heart attack, um, you know, and uh, quickly realized that it was time to excise those parts and then move right away to get her harvested since we were already in flush on that plant, and uh, she was looking good. So uh, it's a small plant. It's almost a cannabis bonsai and really nothing to write home about size-wise, but uh, I expect it'll be really fun to get to consume here in a couple of weeks um, the first cannabis flowers that I've ever grown from a small plant. Uh, these were not from seed. This was a, a cutting that a friend provided me. But uh, yeah, super excited about that. And that's my personal news. So harvest days, yay, October 24th, 2017. Uh, so yeah, all right, then moving on. Something a little bit more serious and definitely kind of weird, definitely in the purview of the awake side of our show and what we do here. Uh, and I want to tell you this story right after I've slightly adjusted my safety level, if you're picking up what I'm putting down. So rather than waste the tape time, we're at 9 minutes and 30 seconds right now, I'm going to put a little pause in here, suggest you also pause. Go grab yourself a seltzer water or a cup of coffee or tea, whatever you need. Pack a fresh bowl. Come on back. We're going to talk about a little bit about the California wildfires. back in here all right I'm feeling safer already I hope you guys are too uh, just as a side note again no formal strain of the week this week but I am dabbing on some slab mechanics um, blue haze this morning and they have some great great information on the back including the terpene profile on this um, Entain. Uh, we got it. I mean, this is a you know pretty mellow. It's a, we're looking at total cannabinoids of eighty two point four percent, THC at 703 percent. Um, yeah, this is like a. I characterize it as a like a butter, and you know it's a softer kind of you know it would be almost spreadable uh, kind of wax and. Uh, good flavor and does have a terpene profile. We see over here, uh, looking at that, you know, total terpenes 3.4%, not, you know, huge, but uh, not bad, definitely detectable flavor profile. We have 0.5% uh, humulene, uh, terpinaline, 0.2%, uh, limonene, limonene, our, our friend, good old friend limonene, 0.2%, linalool, 0.1%, and uh, one called karyophylline at 1.1%. Interesting stats on the terpene profile and you know be really fun to drill in and read about you know each of these terps uh more in detail uh i'm happy to say we talk about it a little bit in some upcoming 
material on the uh, Halloween episode a little bit. So, and uh, that's George who gets into that to an extent. So, cool stuff to look forward to there. And yeah, grab that at Have a Heart this morning over in Skyway where they always take good care of me. And the stuff was really inexpensive and it was a gram, under 25 bucks with my, you know, when you're in the loyalty program over there, just anybody gets that discount. You know, as I always point out, you know, I buy everything I smoke and usually just shout out where I got it and and what, what we're using, you know, what we're dabbing this morning. And I'm enjoying it. It's really great, the Blue Haze. Uh, This is probably the best stuff I've had yet from Slab Mechanics. So, and the cheapest. So, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Um, All right. I don't know how U2 sounds in the background. Maybe they're a little loud this time. They were a little low earlier. I think I see them click, you know, clicking a couple more of those baby bars in the background. Uh, Don't even ask me how I'm doing. It's a mess over here, what I'm doing here today. So, just, it's good. It's cool. It's good. Um, All right, so getting back into it. So, you know, the source here on this story is admittedly, uh, you know, yeah, I'll call them slanted, you know, but I like them Um, because they generally, you know, fit my, you know, usual confirmation biases about things. But this is, you know, and and I work, I try to overcome that, okay? But we're going to take this article this morning and talk about it. We can talk about counterpoint to it. as we continue to look at it and learn more. And they're not taking a position here either. But uh, I think this came out yesterday on MarchAgainstMonsanto.com, and the headline of this article is The Fatal Disease. No, that's not the headline of this article. What the heck happened to our story? There it is. Why did cars melt? While trees and plastic structures, structures remained intact during the California wildfires. Now... We have people who died in the wildfires, and so I'm not going to go super far down this path right now except to say that if you're on Instagram and you haven't seen pictures of, you know, utterly roasted-looking vehicles with melted wheels and tires that are gone, vaporized off of the off of the car, glass gone out of the windows of the cars, uh... <clears throat> and like puddles of molten metal under the cars and then uh in many cases those very cars juxtaposed with like parking strips with grass on them and trees with leaves on them and you know and then another few feet away the houses you know demolished that was adjacent to that driveway where the car was parked or the street where the car was parked and these are numerous vehicles numerous homes being pictured uh and i'm not down there you guys, I can't go to California right now and put eyes on this myself. I can't, you know, I can't physically do that. I have stuff to do up here. Um, but you see pictures like that and you say, what kind of forest fire, wildfire, brush fire does that? Um, so the, the article here is by a gentleman named Marcus Dorsum. And he begins, and I'll paraphrase just a few parts of this really quickly. We won't read the whole article, but obviously we'll include it. We'll include the link. Uh, To state the obvious, a lot of weird weather events have occurred in 2017. Some believe that geoengineering is contributing to the strange weather. Geoengineering, for those who aren't familiar with the term, is 
you know, a term used to describe man-made intentional management of weather locally with an intention of either affecting simply the local area or a larger climatological type effect. And it is highly debated whether geoengineering on a large scale or on a real scale per se takes place, air quotes, anywhere today. Um, at any rate, back to the article. Uh, videos like this, they have a uh, video embedded below entitled Severe Spraying Worldwide, dated 10-17-17. We won't play it right now. We'll, we'll leave that for later. Uh, you know, videos like this have gotten hundreds of thousands of views, and many people are looking into the concept of weather warfare for the first time. So, um, you know, they, they talk about the fake news problem here next, uh, Marcus does. At this point, these topics are on the mind of a massive amount of people. A major wave of attention has been brought to them, and with that wave comes many different side effects. And, of course, when he mentions strange weather, he's talking about all the crazy hurricanes, earthquakes, and things that have occurred already this season all around the world. Um, you'll notice that it is becoming necessary to wade through all kinds of info and misinformation to get to the raw facts. So... Uh, Next, he goes on to say, one might find very intelligent, cohesive-sounding people outright ignoring evidence. I run into those from time to time. One might find very foolish-sounding, non-cohesive people speaking actual facts about this type of thing. Also run into those. A lot online. One might find very foolish-sounding people speaking misinformation, or one might find very intelligent-sounding people speaking purely factual hard to believe information that may be some of the you know more hardline scientist types uh, those scenarios and everything in between is what you get when a massive amount of people start discussing any topic especially one as controversial and complicated as geoengineering so <clears throat> I'm going to skip a couple paragraphs here and point out why we're even why is he even writing this article. Well, like I said, crazy-looking cars and houses, you know, next to seemingly healthy neighborhood uh, trees. Uh, excuse me. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, much more than that, however. Okay, so uh, we have some details posted to uh, a Facebook post uh, with a caption. Uh, that included some enumerated numbered symptoms and issues that occurred just before the fire. Number one, some people got heart palpitations from having their bodies quote-unquote charged. Number two, many, many people saw electrical flashes that made no thunder in perfectly clear blue sky. And worse, some people even saw small sparks everywhere in the air around them. Number three, most damning. These are this is what's on this list here, and I'll I'll tell you why we're talking about this stuff if they don't in the in the article, and I don't think they go into it super much. But most damning. People are reporting that their electronics malfunctioned before the fires hit, with the most pronounced and spoken about malfunction being at a hotel where all of the electrical systems in the hotel malfunctioned, including the electronic access doors, forcing people to jump from windows 
parentheses, because they could not leave their rooms, to escape an approaching fire that instantly appeared out of nowhere in perfect weather. Pictures are being posted, asking why a seemingly delicate plastic slide at a playground didn't melt, as other, much less hardy things burned around it. Pictures like this are being posted, wondering how the aluminum in cars could melt, and houses could be turned to ash. And, you know, when you look at these photos that are in this article, and I've seen a lot of these are the same photos that are going around on Instagram and stuff, and it looks like these houses are completely roasted. It looks like it looks like a, a you know, a space alien from uh, Independence Day flew down and just took the whole house out. It's crazy. Uh, and then there's a building right next to it that's un you know untouched, unfazed, uh, a flat roof building of some kind. It looks like a, you know, like a car wash or something. Maybe even a gas station. It's crazy. Um, yeah. So. Yeah, got another picture here with tons of stuff gone and then tons of trees just absolutely fine uh, in the midst of it. It's like the houses were erased off of the block. This is really weird. Just down, up and down the blocks, up and down the blocks. So at first one might cringe, getting back into the article and wrapping it up on this story, at first one might cringe at the sheer ridiculousness of how this all sounds. I, I understand that too. It definitely does sound ridiculous. Yes, a lot of people will immediately think something is a conspiracy before enough evidence can confirm it. Does that mean it's not a conspiracy? Or does that mean it isn't a conspiracy or at the very least incredibly strange? I, I ask that question myself a lot of times. Because, um, you know, I, I, I go there a lot of times and then I try to reel myself in as much as I can. But here we are. So, uh, our author here goes on to say... I have no explanation for how a car can melt, as plastic playground equipment and trees remain unscathed. I don't understand where the fire would have even come from if it didn't come from the burning trees in some of these photos. Either most people don't know much about the way wildfires work, and it's more complicated than common sense can tell us, or something very strange is going on here. An irrelevant side note to the baked portion of the program here and entirely unexpected, he closes by saying, It has been mentioned that the destruction of many California cannabis crops might be a motive for the creation of these fires. One headline from Business Insider reads, quote, Marijuana could get more expensive after California wildfires wiped out a year's supply of weed. And I can definitely say I'm seeing a lot of posts from my California friends sending positive vibes and support to other friends who have uh, lost portions of their harvest this year already, if not entire harvests, and in some cases, the facilities that go along with them. So definitely not inconsequential damage to the burgeoning, you know, just about to go legal California recreational market there. Um. You know, my only commentary on this article would be, you know, the, the conspiracy types would say that there are, you know, satellite-based lasers and other types of, um, whether you characterize them as weapons or whether you characterize them as instruments, uh, you know, very much up to debate, but that these things exist and that they've been developed ever since the early uh, versions of this uh, that are known by the uh, common in the 
conspiracy community anyway as the harp weapons and uh, you know more modern uh, the scalar weapons uh, believed to be derived from I want to say the Reagan era Star Wars program that was said to be unsuccessful and non-functional and too expensive etc 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 but in fact they say almost certainly was completely successful and unqualified success and you know we know today we have some laser mounted you know lasers mounted on weapons in the field you know all the way down to the size of like you know the next generation Humvee whatever those new trucks are um, that they've got now and uh, on I think some Navy ships as well so uh, that kind of stuff would be the kind of stuff that also would seem a little bit you know like the kind of thing that you could conceivably put on a small aircraft of some kind like a who knows flying drone or something like that but that's you know this is this is seemingly totally a wildfire it's just baffling and crazy looking to look at these photos um it is an interesting you know bit of speculation in that article regarding the cannabis industry in california uh i find this whole topic fascinating and we'll be watching this space uh I think a lot of people are looking at it really closely and looking at, you know, the issue of geoengineering and what it is and if it's happening more and more all the time. And hopefully people will at least give the question the time of day Uh, because I think it's worth asking. Welcome back. You didn't know you were gone, but you were. For just a second. Had to get my notes. All right. So, next story here we got for us is uh, a really cool one from an interesting, I don't know where these guys came from, lifecoachcode.com. Came up on the Facebook feed, so, you know, sue me. But they got a bunch of great links at the bottom of this, and it's an interestingly written article about scientists discover biophotons in the brain that could hint our consciousness is directly linked to light. So, I'm reading this article to you guys because I am, I'm interested in some things I've heard of called the electric universe theory, and there are some really cool like documentary YouTube videos out there by those folks. They have a Website. I've already included their links elsewhere in other show notes and on our website, as a matter of fact, because I do find them really interesting. They have a lot of resources out there talking about their theory. But, you know, basically it's all the same people who talk about cymatics, which is like um, crazy uh, sound frequency science and how there's, you know, some levitation effects that come from cymatics. There's also some really crazy visible uh pattern wave pattern effects uh you know uh, field effects that can be observed using like metal filings and sand and other materials uh placed over things like speakers and things and in enclosures um where they do these experiments um and you know at a certain frequency sound becomes light so and then at a certain frequency like light becomes heat so, yeah, I mean, the light is heat, and it's it's crazy stuff. <laughs> As you can tell, Steve's a real scientist over here, armchair scientist. 
Uh, Alright, to get back into the article here. That's why I'm interested in it, though. That's why I'm sharing it with you guys. Scientists found that neurons in mammalian brains were capable of producing photons of light, or, quote, biophotons. The photons, strangely enough, appear within the visible spectrum. They range from near-infrared through violet, or between 200 and 1300 nanometers. Scientists have an exciting suspicion that our brain's neurons might be able to communicate through light. They suspect that our brain might have optical communication channels, but they have no idea what could be communicated. Even more exciting, they claim that if there is an optical communication happening, the biophotons our brains produce might be affected by quantum entanglement, meaning there can be a strong link between these photons, our consciousness, and possibly what many cultures and religions refer to as spirit. In a couple of experiments, scientists discovered that rat brains can pass just one biophoton per neuron in a minute. But human brains could convey more than a billion biophotons per second. It's quite a claim. This raises the question, could it be possible that the more light one can produce and communicate between neurons, the more conscious they are? If there's any correlation between biophotons, light, and consciousness, it can have strong implications that there is more to light than we are aware of. Just think for a moment. Many texts and religions dating way back since the dawn of human civilization have reported of saints, ascended beings, and enlightened individuals having shining circles around their heads. From ancient Greece and ancient Rome, to teachings of Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, and Christianity, among many other religions. Sacred individuals were depicted with a shining circle in the form of a circular glow around their heads. If they were as enlightened as they are described, maybe this shining circle was just a result of the higher consciousness they operated with. Hence, a higher frequency and production of biophotons. Maybe these individuals produced higher levels of biophotons with stronger intensity because of their enlightenment. If there's any correlation between biophotons and consciousness, even the word enlightenment suggests that this higher consciousness has something to do with light. They show numerous examples of halos around Buddhas and other unlikely saintly figures as well as our more traditional Western Jesus and Mary imagery. But one of the most exciting implications the discovery that our brains can produce light gives is that maybe our consciousness and spirit are not contained within our bodies. 
this implication is completely overlooked by scientists. Quantum entanglement says that two entangled photons react if one of the photons is affected, no matter where the other photon is in the universe, without any delay. Maybe there is a world that exists within light, and no matter where you are in the universe, photons can act as portals that enable communication between these two worlds. Maybe our spirit and consciousness communicate with our bodies through these biophotons. And the more light we produce, the more we awaken and embody the wholeness of our consciousness. This can explain the phenomenon of why the state of a photon is affected simply by consciously observing it, as it is proven in many quantum experiments. Maybe our observation communicates something through biophotons with the photon that is being observed. In a similar fashion as quantum entanglement, like light is just one unified substance that is scattered throughout our universe and affected through each light particle. They close. Of course, nothing of this is even close to being a theory. But asking questions and shooting such metaphysical hypotheses might lead us closer to the truth and understanding of what consciousness is, where it comes from, and what are the mysteries that hide within the light. The last story I have for you today that I want to share is one that I found at, again, this is a new one, I don't know, haven't, haven't seen these guys before, but again, another, you know, I think this was Facebook feed, uh, where I came across this, but crops evolved 10 millennia earlier than thought, is the headline, and this is from m.fizz.org. Org, <clears throat> phys.org. Don't worry, link will be included. Ancient hunter-gatherers began to systematically affect the evolution of crops up to 30,000 years ago, around 10 millennia before experts previously thought, according to new, new research by the University of Warwick. Professor Robin Allaby and Warwick's School of Life Sciences has discovered that human crop gathering was so extensive as long ago as the last ice age that it started to have an effect on the evolution of rice, wheat, and barley, triggering the processes which turned these plants from wild to domesticated. In Tel Karamel, in an area of modern-day northern Syria, the research demonstrates evidence Einkorn, of einkorn being affected, E-I-N-K-O-R-N, must be a primordial corn, being affected up to 30,000 years ago, and rice has been shown to be affected more than 13,000 years ago in South, East, and Southeast Asia. Furthermore, emmer wheat is proved to have been affected 25,000 years ago in the Southern Levant, 
and barley in the same geographical region over 21,000 years ago. The researchers traced the timeline of crop evolution in these areas by analyzing the evolving gene frequencies of archaeologically uncovered plant remains. Wild plants contain a gene which enables them to spread or shatter their seeds widely. Side note, anybody who goes, you know, running around in even so much as a drainage ditch in the neighborhood in the suburbs, you know, when you run across crabgrass and things like that, they explode. Um, wild wheats and other things like that out on trails, they they leave, you know, they the seeds fly. It's wild. Um, yeah, energetically explodes. That's a, that's a trait of a wild plant. So... <clears throat> But they do a great job of explaining that. I don't. I don't. I'm just interjecting because I feel like it. <laughs> uh, so and now I've lost my place. So, <laughs> all right. So, you know, all right. Wild plants contain a gene which enables them to spread or shatter their seeds widely. When a plant begins to be gathered on a large scale, human activity alters its evolution changing this gene and causing the plant to retain its seeds instead of spreading them, thus adapting it to the human environment and eventually agriculture. Professor Allaby and his colleagues made calculations from archaeobotanical remains of crops mentioned above that contained non-shattering genes, the genes which caused them to retain their seeds, and found that human gathering had already started to alter their evolution millennia before previously accepted dates. The study shows that crop plants adapted to domestication exponentially around 8,000 years ago with the emergence of sickle farming technology. But also that selection changed over time. It pinpoints the origins of the selective pressures leading to crop domestication much earlier and in geological eras considered inhospitable to farming. Demonstrating that crops were being gathered to the extent of being pushed towards domestication up to 30,000 years ago proves the existence of dense populations of people at this time. Professor Robin Allaby commented, quote, This study changes the nature of the debate about the origins of agriculture, showing that long-term, very long-term natural processes seem to lead to domestication putting us on par with the natural world, where we have species like ants that have domesticated fungi, for instance. Uh, the research associated with this article uh, is entitled Geographic Mosaics and Changing Rates of Serial Domestication. It's published in Philosophical Transactions of the Royal Society B. That link is embedded in the article that we found here at m.phys.org. And I will, of course, include that in the show notes. So um, I find that wonderful, interesting. And these discoveries push the discussion regarding the dawn of civilization when it actually was the level of sophistication of um, people as a species at any given point in history and time. There are so many subjects that this touches upon and, you know, could be referred back to again and again when discussing, and that is, how old are the pyramids? How old is the Sphinx? How old are megalithic structures elsewhere all around the world? Um, it goes on. So, I love it. Um, 
Here's a nice hard science article, seemingly, uh, you know, published in a in a journal of some kind. We'll look further into that uh, as as we can. Um, I'll I'll read the original uh, source paper as well and see if I can't find any further cool tidbits to share with the rest of you. So, anyway, I think we're there. I think bonus sode is going to be, you know, 45 minutes after I get done thanking you all for being amazing. Uh, I want to thank Super Norman in particular this week for getting into the iTunes store and giving us a five-star review for the podcast. Uh, just love it. You made my day, and uh, I'm sure you made George and Paulu's day as well uh, as they get a chance to peek that uh, review, which I'll be forwarding along to them as well. And I'm not going to read that uh, for the rest of you. That's enough self-gratification for us other than to say I also want to thank everybody for driving record-breaking downloads uh, all month this month in October. And I really just... And beside myself with uh, happiness, we're over well over 200 downloads already in October. The episode we recorded the other day, I was, uh, you know, anticipating hopefully hitting 200 this month, and and you know, thinking that we were going to make it. But uh, we've already left 200 in the rear view, and we're and we're keeping on going. And I've got this episode to drop today that I hope you guys enjoy, and uh, an episode on Friday with uh, Palu and George uh, coming your way. So. Uh, thank you everybody for listening thank you for uh, reviewing us in iTunes thank you for sharing us with your friends and family I really mean it Um, you know maybe you have a podcast lover in your uh, circle maybe you have a talk radio lover in your circle like some old weirdo or something I don't know Uh, but just share it with anybody you want I don't care Um, point them at us and we'll see if they like what they hear Um, All right, and uh, yeah the last thing I'll say is yeah hit me on Instagram as always and uh, email me or hit me there with suggestions for show topics for strains to try for uh, places to visit uh, retail shops in the western Washington area anywhere in greater Washington state uh, you know at some point I'll be happy to make it out to just about everywhere in the state to say hi to you guys uh, so just say hello to me on Instagram and we'll start looking at calendars and come for a visit and say hello All right, everybody, Uh, have a wonderful rest of your week. Um, We'll see you again on Friday, so look forward to that. And between now and then, you know what to do. Smoke Indica. Do shit anyway.